In this episode, I want to discuss why we can do nothing to make God's love for us end or even diminish. You're listening to Onward in the Faith with Ray Burns. Ray is dedicated to equipping Christians to understand why they believe what they believe so that they can keep moving onward in their faith toward maturity in Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, visit patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. And make sure you visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. Now here's Ray with today's topic. In the world today, there are really two major views on God's love. One view of his love paints him as just this kind, loving grandpa who only wants the best for us, and he just he wants only good things. You know, there's no wrath or anger. He is just all-consuming love. The other version of God's love is that it is this thing that we have to kind of earn. Really, whereas the grandpa version kind of takes God in just a New Testament sense of just this, you know, kind, you know, love everyone kind of idea— The idea that we have to earn God's love is kind of what we get when we simply focus on the Old Testament God. We kind of pit them against each other in a way where we see God as either one or the other. And so when we view God in this Old Testament kind of way, we view him as kind of angry and just full of wrath. He's always waiting around to judge people for their sin, and ultimately we interact with him and respond to him more out of fear for ourselves rather than a love and an awe for who he is. If you grow up in a church tradition that really practices this, you're going to end up basically treating God as someone who is just a a real grump. You, You want to do everything you can to avoid being on his bad side. And so if you can do enough, if you can avoid being on his bad side, then he will love you and treat you with with kindness and goodness but only if you toe the line, only if you obey the rules and and stay in line and don't mess up, or at least not mess up too much. And that's really the God that I want to focus on today, this idea that we can somehow do something to either lessen God's love for us or even remove it entirely. And when we really think about it, if this is how we're interacting with God, if this is how we can think about him, you know, maybe we don't go to the extreme of thinking that God is just up there with his divine fist waiting to crush us as soon as we step out of line. But it's very simple for a lot of us to, in a way, fear angering our God. We kind of base our relationship with him based on our own performance. If we act bad, if we give into our sin, if we yell at our spouse or our kids, if we don't do well at work, if we do things that we should not do, whether on the internet or in how we talk with our friends or things like that, whatever it is, we think that if we do the wrong things, then we are going to receive less love from God. His love for us may not end, but it's going to lessen. It's going to be less than it could be if we hadn't sinned, if we hadn't done that thing. And then on the other end, we think, well, then that means that if I act well, if I do right, if I behave righteously, then I will get more of God's love. I can make him love me even more than he does right now, as long as I do these things. And that's really a whole other topic and maybe needs to be my next episode on whether we can make God love us more. But today I want to really focus on, you know, can we actually make God love us less or not at all? And if we can, if we think that we can sin so much, we can have such terrible thoughts, we can be so weak in our prayer life or our Bible reading, 
that it somehow hurts our relationship with him in a sense that he loves us less because of what we've done, then what that does is that puts our relationship with God up to us. We have to work for his love. We may not have to work to earn it, but maybe we have to work to keep it or to maintain it or to keep it at a level that we'd like it to be at. But when we do that, when we think that we have to work for his love, that we have to do something to earn it or to not diminish it, then what we're really saying is that God's love for us is based on works. And maybe some people hearing that think, yeah, God's love for us is based on our works. God wants us to work. We, we have to earn our salvation. We have to work to keep our salvation. But what I want to look at is, is this really the God that we see in the Bible, in both the Old and the New Testament? Is this idea that God's love is contingent on our behavior accurate, or have we somehow twisted our understanding of God and have possibly even reduced the glory and majesty of all of who he is by focusing too much on his love or too much on his wrath? And so to do that, I want to look at three aspects of God that I believe prove that we can do nothing to make him love us less. Now, the first aspect I want to talk about is God's patience. We worship and we love and we serve a patient God. And this is important because if God is patient, that means that he's not reactionary. He doesn't do things based on what just happened. So if you have ever been in a car with an angry person, you know what someone who has no patience is like. You know what it looks like to see someone who is reactionary because as soon as something bad happens, they are laying on the horn. They are rolling their window down and yelling. They are stopping and getting out of the car and kicking someone's tires or whatever. That is not someone who has patience. When something happens to them, they react immediately. And throughout the Bible, we see that that doesn't really describe God. God isn't a being who reacts based on things that just immediately happened. He doesn't go from zero to 100 in his response to anybody. Now, the first place I like to go is a very popular passage in primarily weddings, and that's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but what's interesting is that when Paul here is talking about what love is, what perfect love looks like, the first thing he says is that love is patient. And then he goes in to say it's kind, it's not jealous, it's not arrogant. But the first thing that he starts with is that love is patient. And now the reason that I want to go to this is that whenever we think about this passage, we always think about, oh, this is how I need to love my spouse, or this is how I love my kids, because this is what love is. And yes, this is a model of what love is. But something that we can often diminish and forget when we just assign this to lovey-dovey, warm and fuzzy feelings is that this describes the love of God, because God is the very perfect model of love in the way that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist in a perfect love together, but also the love that God demonstrates towards us. That is what love truly is. And so when we're reading this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, we need to keep in mind that when this says, you know, love is patient, love is kind, we want that to model how we treat others, but really we need to realize that we aren't this form of love. We aren't capable of perfectly and consistently displaying love that is not just patient, but perfectly patient or perfectly kind. Instead, we need to realize that this is perfectly displayed in God. 
And so here, just a, a very simple layout of, well, who is God? What does his love look like? What does his love for us look like? Well, when we think of God loving us, we have to realize that his love for us is built on patience. And as we're going to talk about, that is huge. That is so important for us because if God didn't immediately have patience with his love for us, then yes, we would be able to lose it. We, we would never even be able to keep it if we're honest with just how broken and sinful we are. But, you know, as we're going to see, we can praise God because he loves perfectly and his love is perfectly patient. Now, in Numbers fourteen eighteen, I always love this particular verse because when everyone thinks of, oh, you know, the God of the New Testament is all, you know, he, this is the God of love and patience and all that. But that Old Testament God is full of fire and wrath. And look at what we see in Numbers. Numbers is the third book of the Bible. So this is back when God was honestly kind of pouring out his wrath fairly frequently. He was he was judging the world, I mean, always, but you know, this is where we really see God actively calling for the destruction of peoples and and harshly judging entire cities and towns. But in Numbers chapter 14 verse 18, here's a picture we also get of this God that we are so certain is just full of wrath and so different from the New Testament God. Here it says the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. So again, this is the Old Testament God. And we see here that, yes, God is perfectly just and that he executes judgment on those who are guilty. He punishes sin and he punishes it absolutely. But here we see that God's not just anger and wrath and judgment. Here we see working side by side is that God is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. But somehow alongside that, he also visits, as it says, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children. He doesn't clear the guilty. He doesn't let people off for the crimes that they've committed against his perfect and holy law. Instead, we see that this God who pours out wrath also pours out love and That wrath that he does pour out, he doesn't just do it reactionary. He's slow in his anger. So whenever we see God reacting in anger, reacting in judgment, we have to realize that he's not just going from, like I said, zero to 100. There's a slow burn to it where when he judges people, he does so at the perfect time. But because he's slow to anger and because he's abundant in love and kindness, we don't always see him pour out wrath on people who deserve it. And when we do, we have to know that whatever they've done, whatever wrath they deserve, isn't just because of something that just happened yesterday, but has been a long-standing judgment that's been coming upon them. Now, likewise, when we're talking about patience, we can see this in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, of course, this is popularly known as the fruit of the Spirit. And what this is really telling us is when we are living a life modeled after Jesus Christ, when we are walking in obedience to God, when we are, to the best of our ability, despite our brokenness and despite our our sinful desires and, and that sin nature that we can't get rid of, when we're walking and following God, we're going to see these aspects of our lives grow. And they're not going to grow to make us good people. They're going to grow because we are becoming more like Jesus Christ. So when we think of the fruit of the Spirit, we see that this is 
basically what happens when we stop being us and instead start putting on Jesus Christ, start embracing his righteousness that he gave to us. And in the middle of all this, you know, we see that as followers of Christ, we want to have love because Christ perfectly models love and joy because Christ, despite his suffering and his sorrow, modeled joy because joy and its follow-up peace, they aren't based on our circumstances, but they're based on a knowledge of who God is. And then it talks about patience. In other words, God is perfectly patient. He is the model of patience. It's not that we are trying to be more patient than God, but that he demonstrates it perfectly as he does every aspect of himself because God is the perfect and ultimate goodness. And so when it comes to, you know, can we sin and God immediately just loses love for us? Well, not if God is patient. You know, God isn't going to just look at us and say, oh, you messed up. It's, it's time to, to give you the beat down. And we know that that can't be true because in this same passage of the fruit of the Spirit, if you go back a few verses to Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 21, we actually see what the direct opposite of a life modeled after God looks like. And this is called the works of the flesh. So in other words, if the fruit of the Spirit is what we look like when we are no longer ourselves, when we are putting off our old self and putting on Christ, the works of the flesh— are what it looks like when we are opposed to God, when we are opposite of who he is and what he desires. And if you read those, two things stand out. One work of the flesh is outbursts of anger, and another is enmities. So outbursts of anger is pretty obvious, right? It's the opposite of long-suffering. It's being reactionary. It's being that person in traffic that flips out anytime something doesn't go your way. And likewise, enmity is when we basically, when we set ourselves against someone, when we make someone our enemy, or when we think about them or treat them as our enemy. And so taken all together, can we diminish God's love for us? Can we do something and have him suddenly love us less? To do so would be to compromise God's patience, but it would also be attributing to him that he will react in an outburst of anger that diminishes his love for us, that he will treat us like an enemy based on our performance. So ultimately, we need to say, so what? How does God's patience prove or help us understand that we can't make him love us less? Well, when we think that we are reducing God's love for us, what we're really thinking is that if I do bad things, there will either be immediate punishment or punishment incoming. God's going to pour out his wrath based on what I've done. And that is biblical, right? I mean, God promises that he is storing up wrath for those who are his enemies and that sin will be punished. But let's put a pause on that because we're going to talk about that in the next section. But ultimately, what I want us to see is that God's not just reactionary, where as soon as we break a rule, we lose his love. God's not reactionary like that. He is too patient for that. He is too good for that. And in a practical sense, this can help us to realize that when we feel guilty because of what we've done, we need to not confuse how we feel with how God feels about us. In other words, yes, God is angry when we sin. He is heartbroken when we sin because God hates sin. But just because we are feeling guilt and feeling remorse and we know we need to repent, that doesn't mean that in that moment God is loving us less until we fix it. It's just that we've hurt our relationship with him. And while his love for us doesn't end, it doesn't lessen, that relationship itself has changed. We have changed the dynamic. 
but it's not about us fixing things so God loves us more, but instead realizing that we've done something God hates. We have acted as people who are his enemies, not his children. And so when we think that we're going to get what we deserve from God, right? Because if we're honest, God is holy. He is perfect. He is good. He cannot tolerate any measure of sin in front of him. And yet that's really all we are. Without the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are nothing but walking piles of sin. And so when we think, oh, I've sinned, I've lost God's love, what we do is we forget God's patience. Yes, we are focusing on his hatred of sin and his love of justice, but we're forgetting his patience and his love when we do that. And just like that verse in Numbers shows us, we need to understand that there is a balance. There is a perfect unity between God's love and his patience and his wrath and his judgment of sin. And with that in mind, I want to move on to the second aspect of God, which is that he is a forgiving God. He forgives, and he forgives perfectly. And this, I think, can be huge, not even just in terms of this topic, but just giving us just a huge awe and wonder at God and what he's done by sending Christ to take our place on the cross, to be our propitiation, to atone for our sins, to take that payment that we could never pay. God forgives, and he forgives perfectly, and it's it's amazing. Because here's what we need to realize about God, is that when God is dealing with our sin, he doesn't just sit there suffering quietly. He doesn't just simmer with anger and crack his knuckles and say, boy, I'm going to get them one of these days. You know, And God doesn't just glance over our sins. He doesn't just say, oh, they messed up, that's too bad. Because we know that God loves justice. God cannot allow evil to go unpunished. We may have ideas of what that should look like and that popular question of, well, why God doesn't God just remove evil from the world? You know, we have this idea that God's not punishing evil, but if God is perfect and if he is perfectly just, then we know that when he punishes evil, he does so in his perfect timing because God just can't leave sin unpunished for eternity. He can't just look at the pile of debt that we've accrued through all of our crimes against him and say, oh, no, you're fine. No. A debt has been made, we have committed a crime, and that crime has to be punished. Well, what do we do with this? How do we balance God's needs for justice with his love and ultimately with his forgiveness? Well, in the Old Testament, we may not really know. But because we can look back 2,000 years ago, we can see that God balanced his justice and need to punish sin with his desire to forgive us of that sin. And all of that happened on the cross, on the person of Jesus Christ. And we see this in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. It says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So if you pause this and... Go back and read through this yourself. Notice one theme through all of this. We have ultimate forgiveness through Jesus Christ. It says that we were helpless, 
But Christ died for the ungodly, not for the worthy, not for the righteous, not for people who did enough to earn God's love, for the ungodly, those who are anti-God, whose lives were marked as against him. It says that God demonstrated his love by sending Christ to die for us. In other words, God's love was perfectly revealed through his wrath and his punishment of Jesus Christ on the cross. The only perfect person in all of history, the only person who didn't deserve to be punished for sin, is the one who was punished for every single one of our sins. And it says that, you know, having been justified by his blood, we'll be saved from the wrath of God. In other words, there is no more wrath of God to be paid on our account because God's perfect justice was met at the cross. And that is going to be huge for us to discuss in a moment. And it says that we've been reconciled. In other words, our payment has been made good. Whatever debt we owed has now been zeroed out. And we are saved by Jesus Christ. All of that is because of him, nothing that we've done. And then it ends with this kind of excited statement of we also exalt in God through Jesus Christ. In other words, we realize what Christ did on the cross. We realize what we could never do. We could never earn redemption and forgiveness. Everything that we've done needed to be punished and deserves to be punished. But God sent Jesus Christ to take that punishment in our place. And now really consider that. So on the cross, it talks about how we have no more wrath for us. And that's because our sins were paid on the cross. They were reconciled. So if they were punished on the cross, if God saw sin and needed to pour out his wrath for it, and he did it on the cross, then that means there's no wrath left for us. There's no punishment left for us. And now we often think about that in terms of heaven or hell. Oh, well, Christ took my punishment, so I don't have to go to hell. Yes, but even as a believer, we can find great peace and comfort in this because it's not only that God poured out his wrath on Christ to pay from the sin that sends us to hell, but he also removed any need for us to be punished for any sin we commit. And if we're honest, if God removes his love from us, maybe not completely, but even if God diminishes his love for us, that's a punishment. That is a judgment reaction based on what we have done. That is God paying us back negatively for our behaviors, for our sin. But how could God do that? How could God pour out 100% of his wrath but then we still have to deal with some of his wrath. Maybe not enough of his wrath to send us to hell, but certainly enough to punish us, to hurt us based on what we've done. Again, we, I don't think that we can balance these two things. I think we have to realize that because God forgives, he forgives everything. He never once treats us badly based on our sin. But now that's going to bring up a question for some people. Well, what about discipline? Doesn't God deal with us in our sin? Don't we get in trouble when we sin? Doesn't God give us negative things in our lives because of what we've done? Yes, but really no. Now, if we look at Hebrews 12, 6, it says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So God perfectly demonstrates that when you love your child, you discipline that child. You don't do it out of anger. You don't do it to hurt them because that's sinful. When we as human beings get angry and we react in anger, we lash out, we say or do things to hurt someone, we don't do that for them. We do that for us. We hurt them to make us feel better. We want them to suffer like we suffer. We want to feel powerful over them. We want to hurt them so that they can't hurt us. 
whatever our motivation, when we get angry and attack or hurt or say mean things to someone, we do that purely to serve ourselves. That's when we're in sin. But if God can't sin, then we can see that there's the difference between anger and discipline. Discipline is done out of love. God disciplines us. He deals with us when we sin. There is a a very real kind of cause and effect relationship between when we sin either once or if we continue in a sin especially, God will, in response, deal with us in a way that doesn't hurt us, doesn't pour out his wrath or anger, but to correct us. And that's key. God corrects. He doesn't punish. Because when he does that, God still has the same amount of love for us, 100%. He has 100% of his possible love that he could give us towards us. But his relationship with us has to change necessarily. Just like as a parent, when you have a child who is obeying and, and doing the right thing and doing their schoolwork and doing their chores or whatever, you have a certain feel to your relationship with them. But if they are tearing the curtains off the wall and you know pouring nail polish or shampoo all over the carpet or whatever, if you have a child who is in disobedience, you don't suddenly love them less, or at least we shouldn't love them less. You know, if we're if we're being perfect in our love for them, we're not going to love them less. But how we are interacting with them is going to be different, and we are going to deal with them based on their behavior, not because. Well, now they've lessened their love. Now they don't deserve my love. But no, because because we love them, we want to correct a destructive behavior. And God is the exact same way. Because he loves us, he wants to correct us, not to make himself feel better, not to make us feel bad, but because when we are in sin, we are on not just the wrong path, but a dangerous path. When we are living in sin, we are sprinting wholeheartedly down that dangerous path. Now, if God loves us perfectly, what is he going to want for us? Is he going to want us to be happy and just tell us, oh, pursue what you want, do what feels good? I know it's going to lead to sorrow and heartache, but, you know, it's what's making you happy, so just go for it, kid. No. Because God loves us, the worst thing he could do would be to sit idly by and watch us march towards destruction. Because when we are in sin, we aren't following God. We aren't living in the fruit of the Spirit. We are living in the works of the flesh. And God hates that for us because he knows it's not what's best for us. If God designed us and created us and saved us to love and worship him because he knows that's what's best for us, then the worst thing we could do would be to be outside of that will, outside of his desire for us to obey and to do what it is that he desires because God is perfect and obedience to him and surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord is the best thing we could possibly do. We may not like it, but it's not because we aren't liking it based on the fruit of the Spirit. We aren't liking it because we still have sin. We are still proud. We want to love the things of the world. We want to make time for God. We want to maybe even focus mostly on God. But we don't always want all of God. And in those times where we are walking out of step with the Holy Spirit in our lives, God's going to bring discipline in some form of another into our lives. Sometimes it will be harsh and painful. Sometimes it will be loving and corrective. Sometimes it can be in the form of another brother or sister in Christ. Or sometimes we may not even realize that God has disciplined us. But ultimately, God began a work in us through Jesus Christ, and he's going to carry it through to completion. Even if that means that he has to, out of love, pull us from the destructiveness 
of not just our sin, but the destructiveness of ourselves, because we are very self-destructive. That's how we got into this whole sin mess in the first place, is that we do those things that we think will make us happy, even though we know that they are wrong. But again, because God has forgiven us through Jesus Christ, whenever we're in sin, no matter how grave, no matter how long-lasting, no matter how disgusting or hurtful or cruel that sin is, when God deals with that sin, and he does deal with it, we see in Hebrews 12:6 that he does deal with our sin. But he does it because he loves us, because he has 100% of love for us, he corrects. He pulls us from destruction and back towards life, back towards the light, and back towards Jesus Christ. Again, this wouldn't make sense if our actions scraped away little pieces of God's love every single time, because in just a few moments, there's a very good chance there would be no amount of God's love left for him to want to correct us with. Now, finally, we've talked about how God is patient and he is forgiving, and now we really need to talk about the fact that we can't lose God's love because we worship and serve a loving God. You know, in culture today, there's this popular idea that, oh, God is love. And if you ask people what it means, they'll give you, you know, some kind of wishy-washy thing. But ultimately, the modern definition of God is love is very meaningless because his love doesn't mean anything. And really, our understanding of love is just kind of inherently broken on its own. And so when we think that God is love, it makes sense that we would say that God is love, but God's love is conditional because we have been conditioned by culture to see that love is based on merit. What I mean by that is that if you ask someone, you know, why do you love your husband? Why do you love your wife? They'll say, oh, they make me feel safe. They're attractive. They are patient. They're sweet. They're funny, whatever. When you ask someone why they love a person, typically it boils down to how that person makes them feel. It's what that person does that makes them deserving of their love. And, you know, as parents, something very dangerous that we can fall into is implying to our kids that we love them based on their performance. We will treat them well and with love if they perform well in school or do well in sports or if they like the correct hobbies or wear clothes that we approve of and things like that. And so while we would never say, oh, I love you because you do this or that, there is that certain temptation for us to treat them better or worse, not out of love or discipline, but treat them better or worse based on how they perform, how they act, whether or not they meet up to the expectations that we have set for them. But here's the thing, as we're going to see, love isn't a reaction to someone's behavior. Love doesn't come and go or increase or decrease based on how that other person is performing. We never see in the Bible that God's love for us is earned. And we don't see any idea that God is just falling in love with us and then making decisions based on how we've gotten him to think about us in a positive way. So first, I want to look at Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians chapter 1 is kind of broken up weirdly in terms of the verses. So I'm going to start at the very end of verse four, and then I'm going to end at the very beginning of verse eight. And I'm doing that because it's it's all just kind of cuts off in the middle of sentences. Like I said, very weird. But Ephesians chapter one, starting at the end of verse four, says, "In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will." to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So here, if you go and read it again, one thing I want to really point out and I would like you to see is that in this passage, we see that God's love is his own choice, that everything that he did through Jesus Christ wasn't because we earned it or because he was coaxed into it, but simply because God chose to love us. He chose to send Christ. He chose to freely give us this grace and this mercy. It wasn't earned. You know, if you start off, it says, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. In other words, it was because of God choosing to love us that we are saved, that we can be called his children in the first place. Then it goes on to say, it was according to the kind intention of his will. In other words, God didn't fall into it. He didn't have this kind of love struck moment where, oh man, these people are so amazing. I just, I, I can't believe how much I love them. Look at them. They're, they're funny and they're kind and they take care of each other. No, that's not what we see at all. What we see is that because it was God's will, he chose to love us. He chose to send Jesus Christ. He chose to redeem us. And it goes on to say that he freely bestowed this on us in the beloved in Jesus Christ. In other words, he wasn't bound by his emotions. He wasn't bound by love to do it. He chose to do it and he did so freely. There was no conditions where he said, well, because they've reached this certain level of of goodness or righteousness, now I'm going to send Jesus Christ. No. You know, if you go back and you read things like Romans 8, you're going to see that God chose to do all this before time even began. God from the word go Genesis 1.1 chose to love us, was choosing to send Jesus Christ, was choosing to freely give us the gift of salvation that we could not earn. You know, and we're thankful for this. We're thankful that we don't have to do anything to earn this salvation, that it wasn't up to us and our cleverness or our goodness to earn it. Because otherwise, the end of this where it says that the riches that of his grace that he lavishes on us could never apply to any of us because who among us deserves God's grace and riches lavished on us? Who deserves to have the holy and almighty God of the universe treat us in such a way where he He gives everything of his love, every bit of his grace and his mercy to us freely because he chooses so? There's nothing that we could do to earn it. It's purely because God chose to. And we're thankful for that because if it was based on merit, if his love was based on our performance or our behavior, we'd be in trouble because it's not that God would love us just a little bit. He couldn't possibly love us at all, you know, because the Bible talks about how there is no one who seeks after God. There is none righteous, no, not one. That doesn't mean that there's none who are good enough. It means that there's no one who's good at all. There's no one who seeks God at all. No one loves God at all. It's purely because of his choice to love us that we can then love him. And we can see this even further in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. It says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. So let's pause here. We're not getting a very pretty picture of who we are. But boy, is it accurate. You know, malice and envy hateful, I mean, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. I mean, that goes along with what we see in Romans talking about how we are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. But we have to realize that we were slaves to sin. And there are times where we submit ourselves to sin once again. We let it rule us. But at this very start of this Titus 3 passage, we really just see that we on our own offer nothing good. But let's continue with verse 4. 
But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So again, there's there's a conflicting thing going on in this passage. On one hand, we have us, and we're gross, and we're nasty, and we deserve nothing good. But then there's God. God is kind. He sent Christ. He showed his love for us in doing all of this. And it says nothing about, well, because we earned it, because we deserve it. No, it literally says not on the basis which de- of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but it's all according to God's mercy. So we contribute nothing. We contribute nothing to our salvation, but we also contribute nothing to earning any amount of God's love for us. And if we can't earn his love, we can do nothing to keep his love. We can do nothing to maintain a certain level of it. God's love is 100% because God chooses to make his love 100%. You know, and if we need another check to our pride, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, I'm not going to read all of it. I would, of course, encourage you to pause or when you can later, check the show notes where I have all the scripture that I read in here. But If you at least go to verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, we bring nothing to the table when it comes to not just our salvation, but just God's love in general. We can't brag about saving ourselves, and we also can't brag about how much we make God love us. We can't look to our pastor and say, boy, I bet God loves him more than he loves me. And we can't look at someone who is really struggling in sin and proudfully say, well, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but at least God loves me more than he loves that guy. You know, God loves all of us equally 100%, but he is dealing with us differently based on our bad decisions or our surrender. Because it's not our decisions that make us do good things. It's just surrender. When we surrender to God, we're in his will. When we don't surrender, then we kick against him. We fight. We pursue our passions and lusts. But again, on and on, we can just see all throughout the Bible and really all throughout our lives, we realize we are broken. We are undeserving of God's love. If we're really honest, if we really understand not just things like the Ten Commandments, but really the entire character and nature of God, when we truly understand, if nothing else, pride and idolatry, if we get a really good biblical understanding of what pride is and what idolatry is, we're going to realize that we are drenched in our love of sin We can't escape this love of sin that we have. And so to think that we can somehow do enough, that we can somehow perform well enough to deserve God's love or to not hurt God's love for us, the only way that we can think that that's possible is if we diminish the reality of sin in our lives. But if we're not reducing the reality of our sin, if we're not discounting how horrible our sin nature still is, then we've got to realize can we make God love us any less? No, of course not, because if it was up to us whatsoever, we would have to only make God love us, not at all. We're not capable of any good on our own that would deserve any amount of God's favor or goodness. But instead, what we see is that his love is an extension of his will. God chooses to love us, and so he loves us. Isaiah 14, 27 can give us great hope with this. It says, For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? So 
we realize that we can't stop God from causing the rain. We can't cause him from healing the sick. We can't even stop him from redeeming lost sinners. Whatever God plans, he's going to do. So if it's God's will, if it's God's plan to love us, do we really think that we're powerful enough to stop it? Do we really think that God can sit there and say, I really want to love them, but no, because that's not the God that we love and worship. We worship a God who, when he sets out to do something, he does it. He set out to create the universe, and so he did. He set out to save lost sinners, and so he did. And so if God is setting out and choosing to love you, to love me, nothing we can do can stop the will of God. And so what do we do with all that? What do we do with the fact that we can love and worship a God who is patient despite our sin, who doesn't just suffer silently, but sent Jesus Christ to pay the complete penalty for that sin so that we have no wrath left for us? What do we do with the fact that our God isn't just love in the sense that our culture thinks of love, but God is love based on who he is, and it's eternal, and it's not up to us. It's his choice, it's his will, and it's unstoppable. What do we do with that? I think ultimately, we need to just rest. We can rest in the fact that if God loves us, it's his will to love us. We don't deserve it, certainly, but we also can't stop it. We can't diminish it. We can't make God love us 99%. God is purely love, and those whom he chooses to love, he loves them absolutely because he loves us with a perfect love. And so, you know, as Christians, whatever stage we find ourselves in life, we're going to have something where we're frustrated, where we're feeling down, where we just feel like, you know, God just is angry at me. He hates me. He's turned his face from me. And those are hard times in our lives. But when we are getting past our emotion, getting past how we feel, how our guilt is making us feel, we can really just enjoy God in those difficult moments because we can know that, you know, God, I don't know where you are. I don't know why I'm feeling this way, but I know that you love me and that your love hasn't diminished or reduced or left me because you are God. And if you are choosing to love me, if you chose to love me before you created me, then you love me. We can find great peace in that. We can find rest and satisfaction that that is the God that not just that we love, but that loves us. And not just that, it's not just about soothing ourselves. And I really don't want this episode to be some kind of like massage for our egos that's just about making us feel better. Because ultimately, when we realize God's love for us, I think the greatest thing that comes out of that is that we are then motivated to serve him. Because we can screw up, we can fail, we can live lives where we have lots of ups and downs. And sometimes it might even feel like we have a lot more downs in our spiritual walk. And we may feel like we're not making enough progress in becoming spiritually mature. But we don't have to have this overwhelming sense of dread of, oh no, is this too far? Has God just decided to stop loving me? Am I just so wretched that God messed up and shouldn't have had Christ die for me in the first place? No. That's not the God we serve. And because we know who God is, serving him is just delightful. It's peaceful. It's satisfying. No matter how hard it may be, we realize that we serve him not to earn anything, not to hold off his wrath and try to just dodge the firebolts for a while. Instead, we serve him simply because he loves us and he allows us to love him. And that's amazing. You know, it also motivates us to obey 
not because we need to obey or lose our salvation. We obey because God called us to do things because they're good for us. And so we want to love the things that God loves. We want to hate the things that he hates. And so it's not just a matter of, well, obey the law. It's obey everything about God. Yes, the things that we see in the Bible, but also what the Holy Spirit brings into our lives where we know that, you know, I need to obey God in this way, even though it's not outright a sin. I am convinced in my conscience, which is being guided by the Holy Spirit, that this is wrong for me. And with all of that, and maybe this is where it ends, maybe this is where it begins, but understanding God's love, how do we not worship him? How do we not just look at him and say, God, I, I can't even right now because he is, he is so incredible. He is so amazing and he is so perfect in his love that we just can't fathom it. Even when we think we have a good understanding of God's love, his love blows us away again because we just can't fathom this perfect and timeless and eternal love that he lavishes on us. All the grace that he gives us, the mercy, he gives us Jesus Christ. He allows us to not just wait until eternity to start loving and serving him, but he gives us the Holy Spirit so that today, right now, we can love and serve him. We can grow. We can cast off the works of the flesh and put on the fruit of the Spirit. Worship in the life of a believer is really almost a default. And really, I mean, that's kind of what this whole ministry is about, whether my blog or my podcast. I just want to drive Christians to worshiping their God. I want to talk about theology. I want to talk about the truth of God because the more we understand him, the more we learn about him, the closer we draw to him because we know truly who he is. And the closer we get to him, the bigger he becomes, the more amazing he becomes. I mean, that's the end goal of theology. It's not about learning and getting smart. It's about just knowing more of God so we can live a life that glorifies him above all else. But enough gushing about God on my part. I want to end this with Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. And I want you to notice that it starts out by saying, I am convinced. And I think that's key because we don't know God. We don't believe the things of God based on how it makes us feel about what our emotions are telling us. It's about worshiping him and glorifying him and loving him with our mind. Because it's our mind, that ability to reason and think through the Bible, God gave us that ability primarily to drive us towards him. So now listen to what Paul says here in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Savior. I want to make one final observation in this episode, and I hope that you will think about it and even go back and read this passage in Romans and just let it sum up everything that I've said in this episode. It says that none of these things that Paul listed can separate us from the love of God. Go back and reread the verse and remember that you are a created thing, which means that if this passage in Romans is true, you will never be able to separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 